Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll be focused upon 1 Samuel chapter 13 through 16, but we will range from chapter 12 to chapter 18. For those of you that are new to Dawson, we have been on a journey that is a long and twisty and surprising with with many, many turns of the rise and the fall of King David on Sunday mornings as we've looked at 1 and 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we, we come now to a place where you're going to see why David, no doubt, is an endlessly fascinating character. The, the, the narrative of David is one that is such a deep well. It, it is a well that is full of, of artistic inspiration. It's not surprising to us that you could get on a plane and go to Italy and find that uh, Michelangelo and Donatello, that the Saul and David, the, the subject of their most famous sculptures, or the famous painter Rembrandt would take the story of Jonathan and David and you get on a plane to go to St. Petersburg and to see one of his greatest works of art. One of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, William Faulkner, found so much inspiration in the story of David and his estranged son Absalom that he would title one of his novels, Absalom, Absalom. Even those of you that have some, some musical background would know that one of the most haunting Songs of the 20th century written by the singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah, made famous really by Jeff Buckley's rendition, is based in the very pathos and pain of the story of David. It's a story, though, that we don't read just first and foremost to mind the artistic inspiration that comes, although that is certainly there, We don't read this just to marvel at a story full of twists and turns. We read this because it is the word of God. And it is a word that is true to all of us that are here in the sanctuary this morning. And it is a story like all of the Old Testament that points beyond just the details that are told. And it points in the story of David beyond David himself to the very subject of the, what the New Testament writers would call the very son of David, Jesus himself. And so we, we have in the story of David a, a wedding of our appetite, a preview of coming attractions of a better David, a truer David, a perfect David. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. It's coming. This is our hope, not in a historical king called David, but in the son of David, Jesus Christ. Now to get us to chapter 13 and beyond of 2 Samuel, I think it's important for us to just remind ourselves. So let me just give us a little rendition of previously in the life of David. We left David after chapter 11 with the adulterous affair with Bathsheba. We come to chapter 12 and the prophet Nathan is given a word of the Lord to the king David. And in those four words that were just sort of haunting to the very soul of David, it just stinged him. You are the man 
who have taken your position and your power and you have robbed, you have taken from Bathsheba what is not yours, you have taken the very life of her husband, Uriah. David repents. David asks for forgiveness. He is completely forgiven. But what we just have to be reminded of again and again that God in his forgiveness doesn't pull out a magic wand and erase all of the consequences for his family. And we actually stare into the stark consequences as Nathan gives him just a a hard preview of what is going to be before him in verse 10 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel Now, therefore, Nathan says to David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so Nathan is saying, what is ahead for you, David, is going to be painful. And it is painful. What unfolds before us in the rest of 2 Samuel is a family that is descending into this downward spiral of dysfunction. Now, no family is immune to this. No, no family is immune to a family feud. No family is immune to dysfunction. I mean, there are varying degrees of it, but no matter how beautiful your wedding venue is, you were not married in the Garden of Eden. No matter how beautiful your home is, your address is not in the Garden of Eden. So you're not married in the Garden of Eden, nor do you raise your children in the Garden of Eden. So of course, pain and hurt and betrayal, all of these things are gonna come before us and the stark and the sadness of the consequences of David's story are going to also intersect our story in varied degrees here. But David's family unravels and it unravels in a way that, that would, would really challenge. It's sort of like a montage of the greatest hits of all the Jerry Springer shows put together. It is an R-rated story. And it is an R-rated story that has incest and abuse and murder and adultery and substance abuse and theft and murder and more murder. And that is what's before us here. And so no, there, there are no coloring book pages that go along with the sermon for three-year-olds to color along with. That's not what this passage is. This is a stark and a sad portion of scripture because you know what, friends? The consequences of sin are stark and they're sad here. This is not a G-rated section of scripture. And it is a reminder to us that we do not live in a G-rated world either. And so God's word at times is stark and at times it is sad. And we begin that sad and stark story right in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. The narrator begins a sordid tell, introducing the main characters to us. Amnon, David's oldest son, is the heir apparent to the throne. All he has to do is to wait for the death of David, and he will become the king. Now, he falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. Now, we need to call it like it is. There, there's nothing that really is love in this passage. This is unbridled lust on full display and it leads Amnon to take advantage of his sister Tamar. All the while, 
In a very sad portion of scripture, she tries to reason with him. She tries to appeal to his sense of decency, but decency and restraint will not win the day. And like father, like son, Amnon will take just like David took. And what happens behind the closed doors spills out to David the father. And David privately is furious. But you're going to search, you're going to search and you're going to search and you're going to search to find any time that David gives consequences to his son for what he has done and what he has taken. You're going to, you're going to search and you're not going to find David speaking in as a, as a father should in the midst of this hoarded story and, and hatred that comes before us here. Now, of course, the Bible is not an exhaustive book. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that David ever did or everything that David ever said. So of course, there can be conversations that are not here in scripture, but what scripture gives us has a stark sound of silence before us. And there is a deafening absence of David, the father's discipline. Now David could have confronted his son, Amnon. And it could have, we can imagine, went something like this when David tried to bring more authority to his son. We could imagine his son throwing it back into his face, his own failures. Oh, now, Dad, you want to be the moral authority, huh? You, you want to come and tell me what I should do with my life? Can I remind you of some names? What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? We have to imagine these kinds of conversations. They're not before us in the text of scripture here, but what we don't have to imagine is Absalom's response. It is given to us very clearly in scripture. In the absence of his father's discipline, Absalom takes his sister Tamar in and, and protects her and watches over her. And he begins to scheme and plot for two years for the perfect time to do what he thinks his father should have done. The opportunity arises, family reunion of sorts. He invites Amnon, he invites all the rest of his brothers to a feast on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Amnon is there and the wine is flowing and he gets drunk and Absalom's servants murder him in cold blood. Absalom knows in this moment that, that his father is going to be furious. And so he takes the family and he flees 90 miles north of Jerusalem. And he hides out for three years. Now, if you're reading along, you ask the question, where in the world is David? Where, where is David? Where's King David in the midst of this family reunion that turns out to be this murderous family feud here? Where's David? And that's what the narrator wants you to ask. It's a really good question. Because what we begin to realize is that David is a shell of a man that he once was. His sense of failure has robbed him of all the moral authority to be able to speak into his son's lives and then their decisions. And as the curtain closes on chapter 13, we have the orchestra playing this melancholy music. There is no sign of a father and son reunion on the horizon. And we close the chapter and we sit in the darkness. Curtains open to chapter 14. There's a single light that shines upon the center of the stage and there's a character who we do not know well. 
but it is a character who's one of the servants of David. His name is Joab, and he realizes after years now that there's not going to be David budging from his corner here. There's no hope of a reunion between David and Absalom. So he begins to be sort of kind of a third-party mediator to bring these two parties back together, and he surprises David with a homecoming of sorts. But David gets mind of it, and he gets wind of it, excuse me, and he knows that Absalom is bringing uh, four grandchildren in tow with him. And you would think that that would soften the heart of David, but what we read is the opposite in verse 24. Let him, Absalom, dwell apart in his own house. He is not coming into my presence. Instead of throwing Absalom a party, he changes all the locks to the palace. Instead of welcoming Absalom into his old room, he's He's, he's long ago given that room to somebody else here. Long ago moved Absalom out. He is no longer welcome. And you would think that maybe over time the king would soften. You would think maybe there would be some uh, time that would heal all of these wounds, right? Wrong. Verse 28. So Absalom lived two weeks? No. Two months? No. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. I mean, this is a house arrest of all house arrest right there. Can't even get into the palace here. Well, there's no feuds like a family feud. There's no pain like family pain. Some of the deepest hurts that you can have here on earth are family, uh, familial and family hurts here. And so there's so much water under the bridge between David and Absalom. What we're beginning to see is, is the bridge has been capsized. There's no real hope of a reunion here. And so resentment is building and bitterness is stewing and it is going to, well, it is going to boil over. We got five years of this. So surprise, surprise, Absalom, the son's rage builds and his hatred for his father, it just comes to this, to this boiling moment where he decides that there's going to be a full out mutiny where he is going to overthrow the king. After years of being estranged from the king, there is no respect for him any longer. So Absalom does what? He says, I am going to spread my wings. And we pick up the story in chapter 15 of verse one. After this, after all this hurt, after all of this, alienation and being ostracized from one another, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand before the way of the gate. Let me fill you in with what Absalom is doing here. Absalom is saying a change is going to come in me. My, my father is no longer fit to be the king here. So I'm going to go ahead and take the reins from dad. I'm going to go ahead and put the crown on. I'm going to go ahead and take the throne on. And I'm not going to wait till dad bites the dust here. I want to do that right now because we need a change of regime. Now, David, the king, he hears of the mutiny. You know what King David does? Once again, he's absolutely passive. What, what King David does is long before Shakespeare's King Lear, 
We've got King David showing us exactly what it looks like for a king to abdicate responsibility and to rule irresponsibly. So Absalom shows up on the scene. Absalom spreads his wings and David gets his entourage. And for all practical purposes, he goes to the equivalent of a sort of a Greyhound station and gets a one-way ticket with his people out of town to the River Jordan. Absalom takes the reins then. Absalom is in charge in Jerusalem. David is out of the picture. He takes the king's title, but this is the problem with Absalom here. He is not, he wants the title, but he's not interested in the God-given responsibility that comes with the title. Absalom is all about Absalom. Absalom only gets into politics to, to build a brand. Absalom only gets into politics to be able to make a name for himself. And this is going to eventually come to a dramatic and climatic battle. David's got some loyal men that have stayed with him. Absalom has got all of his forces that he's amassed. And we come to this battle here that has been brewing for chapters and years. And it comes to us in chapter 18. But I have to tell you, it's just not much to read. If you're thinking it's going to be months and years of this bloody battle, it's not. It's brief. And the rebel forces of Absalom, they are quickly routed. And Absalom separated from his troops. And when you're reading through the descriptions of Absalom, one of the things that the narrator wants you to always know is Absalom has got this, you know, long flowing hair. There's enough people in this room that are old enough to remember Fabio. Absalom has got Fabio-like hair. And in one of the strangest death sequences in all of the Bible, he's on a horse and his hair is literally flowing behind him. And all those locks of hair get caught in these branches and it pulls him off his horse and he's dangling. And Joab, one of the king's servants, sees him in this vulnerable position. And instead of cutting him down, he takes one javelin, a second javelin, third javelin, spears him in the heart. This is a brutal death. David hears of his son's death. In one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible, we read in verse 33 of chapter 18, the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And I have to tell you, this is where we're going to leave King David. It's not the end of 2 Samuel. But it's the end of our journey. We're going to leave him in the midst of grief. We're going to leave him in the midst of hopelessness and joylessness, sad. And it, as you are, are tracking through the story, you begin to realize how preventable all of this story is, right? And, and here we are, the third Sunday of Advent, 
And the theme of the third Sunday of Advent is joy. And could I, as your pastor, have chosen a more depressing story in all of the Bible? I mean, at this point, there, there are some of you that are like, oh, Pastor David's kind of Scrooge-like here, not very Christmassy. Some of you are already getting ready for a Christmas Eve service in the book of Leviticus. This is what you think is going to happen on the rate we're going here. But would you? Would you just for a few moments hear me out? Maybe this story could give us glimmers of gospel light that shone forth in the midst of the darkness and bleakness of murder, abuse, and grief. What, what if such a joyless, hopeless passage was given to us for such a time as this. A time in our world, a time in our nation, a time in your life, in your home. I, I have a feeling some of you are asking, you know, kind of why, why is a passage like this and all of this bleakness and all of this darkness actually in the Bible? Any, any answers to that? I imagine somebody here in the transepts might be thinking at this moment, well, of course we know the answer to this. God in his inspiration, inspired the very narrator of 1st and 2nd Samuel to give this true story to us so it would be passed down to us so that we would learn. And then I ask a question, well, what are we learning from this passage? And maybe somebody in the back of the sanctuary wants to raise their hand at this time and say, I can tell you exactly what we learned from this passage. It's a lesson, sort of a lesson of what happens when parents take the passive road back away from their children, that it leads, what it leads to dysfunction, that sometimes we have to take the courage and the power, a painful path with courage to be able to intersect in the midst of darkness and the bleakness. And so maybe this kind of passage teaches us that, or maybe somebody else on, on this side of the transepts right here are saying, well, I know I tell you, I'll tell you what it is. Maybe this passage is just a reminder of the sad consequences Sin is damaging. There are real consequences. And yes, all those things are true in different degrees. But hear me out. Maybe David's downward slide and maybe his chaotic stumbling to the end of his reign is given to us first and foremost, not as a lesson and how not to or how to discipline children. As we see sort of the spoiled family fruit that is there on David's own family tree, maybe it's not first and foremost a, a lesson per se in what to do or what not to do. Maybe in the bleakness of this story, there is a desire for a, a better story, right? a more true story, right? A joyful story, a hopeful story. And, and maybe as you are listening to the story of a father and a son who cannot be reunited, it draws you and it whets your appetite for a story of a father and son who are reunited. Maybe in the darkness of this story, we hunger for the light 
of a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15 of a father and a son who were estranged. And just like Absalom, that son said to his dad, I disown you. I want my inheritance now. I want what's coming to me right now. I want to be the king. And he runs off. He runs off to a foreign land. The consequences of his decisions come to the, to the head and he, and he makes his way back and he's, he's preparing his speech to give to his dad. But before he can get it even out of his mouth, the, the father runs to meet him and embraces him. And instead of that father saying, hey, I've got house arrest for you for the next two years. Instead of that father saying, hey, you don't have a room at this house anymore. Instead of that father saying, you are not welcome here. That heavenly father said, for any prodigal who comes home, I will cut on the music and I will fire up the grill because my son, my daughter who was lost has now come home. Maybe this story of Absalom and David's failed reunion prepares our hearts for a heavenly father who will never change the locks on a son or a daughter who in repentance comes home. That forgiveness is given to us, not in a cheap way. The forgiveness that is given to us comes at a cost. And you know the story, the, the hefty price tag that comes for all of our wayward wanderings, for all of our sinful escapades, is the price tag of the death of God's only son, Jesus. And so we go back to that pathos filled passage where David is weeping over his own son Absalom and David in his heartache is saying what I long to trade places with you my son I want to die in your place and what David longed to do as a father do you know that our heavenly father has actually accomplished for all of us that are here God's own son took our place and the death that we deserve to die for the wages of our sin is death. The innocent, perfect, righteous one, Jesus, God's only son, has paid the price. Now we are able to see a little bit more clearly what Christmas is all about. And why joy is actually available to all of us here because Jesus, God's perfect son, has entered into the tattered and broken pages of human history, not first and foremost to inspire us to live really good lives, or first and foremost to teach us, but really first and foremost to rescue us from the bleakness and darkness of this world and of our own hearts. And joy is only found in the Advent season when you understand that light has actually come into the darkness of our world and our sinful souls. The Bible is not a sanitized book. It's not G-rated. It's not PG-13. It is R-rated because we live in an R-rated world. 
there's actually real darkness in this world. And there's real darkness that breaks in to the zip codes of where all of us live. There are real victims in this world like Tamar. There are real abusers in this world like Amnon. They are real murderers in this world like Absalom. And they are real deadbeat dads like David. There's real dysfunction and there's real mess. And we need to be reminded at Christmas is that our savior is not afraid to enter into the messiness of this world, the messiness of real life. I hope you know this, but I hope you feel this. I hope you believe this at the very heart of you that no matter how messy your home is, no matter how messy your family is, no matter how messy friendships are, no matter how messy marriage is or how messy parenting is, no matter how real the estrangement is in your life, no matter how brutal pain might be in your life, God has not given up on you. And he's not given up on your home. There is forgiveness and hope and love that is available, there's healing that is available, that is direction that is available, there's forgiveness and restoration available because God is available to the messiness of all of our experiences here on earth. And at times we ask ourselves, where is God in the midst of the mess? And what we have to be reminded, which is the joy of the Advent season, is that God is right in the midst of the mess, seeking to save and seeking to redeem all of our sin and all of our sadness. It's only when you look into the bleakness and the darkness of this actual world as it is, and you see the bright contrast of the light of the incarnation, it's only then, church, they were able to truly say, joy to the world. Why? Because the Lord has come into the real world. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit dawsonchurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.